beautiful thing about uh, Psalm 1, before we stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord, the, very, the beautiful thing about Psalm 1 is it doesn't have an author. We don't know who the author is. They call it an orphan psalm, uh, meaning that it has, it's attributed to no parent. It's an orphan psalm. And, um, and, it's, it, and the psalms were intended to be sung. They're music. It's like a hymnal. It's a Jewish hymnal. And the very first word in the very first psalm of the very first chapter of the book of Psalms, the very first word is blessed. The translation is a fascinating translation. It means, oh, how happy. And it dwells on happiness. Oh, how happy is the man, as the psalm begins. Oh, how happy. And, and to follow through and understand, it's the cry of every human heart for happiness. Our founders understood this. We'll see it momentarily. And it ties in with what we want to do as a congregation, because as a congregation, you afford me the ability to do the things that I do, and, and, it's, and, and uh, yet as a fellowship, you, you let me travel. As a fellowship, uh, you show up each week. You encourage one another. But the word fellowship is really, uh, the, the, the purpose of a fellowship is found in its title. We fellowship together. We have things in common. And one of the areas that's lacking in our, our, our fellowship is uh, an opportunity to connect with one another. We come on Sundays, um, but we want to go deeper. And so we really, a number of folks have come to me and said, we'd love to do home groups. And so we are really pushing towards home groups. And the very first book that God gave me in this time of prayer is a book by Randy Alcorn called Happiness. Uh, I want us to understand that because I think we're, we're missing it. In a world where we've never had more material uh, things, have we ever been more depressed? And, uh, and happiness isn't based on what you possess. Uh, materialistically speaking, happiness is a condition of the human heart based on the things we're going to find in Psalm 1. And um, I, I pray that it ministers to you as much as it did to me. And for those in the hearing of my voice, I, I pray that it does a great work in your life because it's one thing that all of us desperately need more of is happiness. So before we begin the study, we're going to begin with the most important part, which is just letting the word speak for itself. The way you defend a tiger is let it out of the cage. And the strongest part of the service is not me babbling on. The strongest part of the service is when you hear the word read. And actually, I'm going to have you again as we go through this. Read it with me. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'd ask you to follow along with me. Uh, I know we did it last week, and I want to do it this week because I want us to own this. So we'll read out loud together. Amen? Are you ready? Here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Lord, we thank you for your word that doesn't return void. And God, just in the hearing of it, our hearts are strengthened. And God, we long to know the fullness of this passage that you would strengthen us, Holy Spirit, and lead us into all truth. We, we praise you and thank you for ministering to us even now. Lord, if we were to leave, we would be content because we've been given your word. But now, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, cause us to come alive to your word, 
And so, Lord, we commit this time to you now, and we thank you for what you're going to do in and through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have a seat and relax. It's not the most biblically sound video of Prager University, but it is certainly one that we've seen before and one which I deeply appreciate. I like it because it does put an angle on it that I don't often think we as Christians consider, that it is really an action that uh, we obtain happiness. It's really an act of our will. And so I want you to take a look at this video by Dennis Prager on happiness, and then we'll build from that. It'll kind of set the tone, so enjoy it. Most people think of happiness as essentially a selfish issue. I want to be happy, and I want to be happy for me. I'd like to suggest that, in fact, happiness is far, far more than a selfish desire. In fact, it is a moral obligation. I know that most people have never thought of happiness in this way. Neither did I, to tell the truth, for much of my life. I thought that happiness, and especially the pursuit of happiness, was all about oneself. But it isn't. Whether or not you're happy, and most importantly, whether or not you act happy, is about altruism, not selfishness, because it is about how we affect others' lives. And that's what makes it a moral issue. Ask anybody who was raised by an unhappy parent whether or not happiness is a moral issue, and I assure you the answer will be yes. It is no fun being raised by an unhappy parent, or being married to an unhappy person, or being the parent of an unhappy child, or working with an unhappy coworker. Our happiness affects others profoundly. That's why happiness is a moral obligation. We are morally obligated to at least act as happy as possible, even if we don't feel happy. People can't be guided by feelings because it is how we act that affects others, not how we feel. A good analogy to bad moods is bad breath. Why do we brush our teeth multiple times every day? It's not only because of hygiene, it's because we want to present good breath to anybody who we come into contact with. Well, the same thing holds true for our moods. A bad mood should be regarded exactly as we regard bad breath. Why are you inflicting it on me, or why am I inflicting it on you? It's just not right. That's why one should endeavor as much as possible to act as happy as possible as often as possible. And just about anyone can do this. No matter how unhappy you may feel at any given moment, you can and have to make a decision on how to act. We may not be free to control whether we feel sad or happy, but we are free to control whether or not we present a happy countenance to others. That doesn't mean we don't share how we feel with our best friends, including hopefully our spouse. Of course we can, and without overdoing it, we should. You know, I, I'm really sad. I had this problem at work today. I have this problem with my marriage. I have this problem with my kid. I have this problem with my parents. But you don't inflict a bad mood on anybody. That's a different thing altogether. We all have the capacity to control how we express ourselves, no matter how we feel. I can prove it. Imagine someone who is just acting miserably to his or her spouse when somebody comes to the door. Have you ever noticed how nicely such a person will treat the stranger? 
How were they able in a split second to go from inflicting their awful mood on their spouse to acting beautifully toward the stranger who's at the door? Obviously, we can control our moods. Or how about this? Let's say you are chronically in a bad mood and I offered you $10,000 a week not to be in a bad mood. Do you think this would affect your ability to be in a good mood? I suspect so. And to be honest, we even have the power to affect how we feel, not only how we act. Abraham Lincoln famously said that we are as happy as we decide to be. That is exactly what we should decide. Being happier is good for us, and it is what we owe everybody who is in our lives. Becoming happier is another great benefit of acting happy. The happier we act, the happier we will feel. We think that our actions are determined by our feelings, but we have the power to achieve the opposite, to shape our feelings by our actions. How we act influences our feelings more than our feelings should ever be allowed to influence our behavior. So yes, indeed, we do have a moral obligation to be, or at least to act, happy. The happy make the world better, and the unhappy make it worse. Happiness is a huge issue. Lincoln was right. We are as happy as we decide to be. And it's time to make that decision. I'm Dennis Prager. Uh, yesterday, I had the privilege to officiate a memorial service for a dear friend uh, who went to be with the Lord, Dan Traub, uh, Four Seasons Carpet Care, and his wife, Sylvie. I was with her yesterday, and I had the privilege to be with his daughter and also his son, and uh, the grandkids were there. And um, the service was in Ventura, and then we went out to Ivy Lawn um, Cemetery for the internment. And I was with Sylvie, and, you know, this is her best friend. Uh, and she just said, I, I don't know how to go on without him. And the thing that amazed me about Dan is his life was one of always optimism. Um, he had tough times, but he was surrounded by good friends. He was a giver. He wasn't rich in the things of the world, but he was rich in friendship. He participated in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, because um, having been born in the valley and then entered into the music scene at an early age, he went off the rails and got involved in some bad stuff and found himself in, enmeshed in addiction and then uh, came to Christ and went through AA and participated and would share with all the folks at AA about the Lord. And at AA, you talk about a higher power, but uh, Dan would take his opportunity to speak and each of the five that spoke on his behalf, two of them were his children, two were members of AA, um, and they talked about how he just was relentless in preaching the gospel to them and sharing with them. And they said they've never seen a more genuine faith than they saw in Dan. And they just said he was the real deal. He was always optimistic. He was always hopeful, even in the throes of stage four cancer. His body was riddled, always a hope to, to beat this. And he was. I, when I, the last time I saw him, he just said, what I need to do is get this edema down so I can get back to work. And I'm looking at him thinking, I... <laughs> You know, I, I, first of all, I don't do hospital visits, and if I'm visiting you, you're probably dying. I know, I know that sounds terrible, but I just struggle going to hospitals. Now I got to go there, and when I come to see you, you're not dying. It was a joke, okay? So just work with me here. 
But while I was there and he was telling me this, I'm looking at his body and it's not my first rodeo. And, and you know, people will look at me and say, well, pastor, you lack faith. Okay, great. I, I, maybe I lack faith. There's been times where I've prayed for people to be healed and they've been healed completely. So you can make any assessment you want. But there are times where I feel like Peter, where Peter said to the, the beggar who was crippled, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he grabbed him and he began to leap and dance and praise the Lord. I feel like the kind of guy that says, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I grab his arm and drag him across the floor. <laughs> I'm just telling you. I, there are times where the Lord gives me that, that faith to pray and believe that there's healing because I sense the Lord told me there would be. And I can count those on one hand. Um, and in the case with Dan, I didn't feel that. I didn't sense the Lord telling me that. But I loved his optimism. And I had, I had shared with him and encouraged him. And, um, and shortly, the, the, I think the next day, he went to be with the Lord. So I, I was thinking about this as I'm walking with Sylvie. She's overwhelmed and she says, I don't know if I can go on without him. And I said, Sylvie, life is a dash. It's going to be a short time before we're all together, and you've been given the gift of life on this earth to make a difference. And the thing that we both can agree with about Dan's life is he lived life. He was happy. Dan wants you to be happy. He wants you, in the midst of the trial, to find that strength to persevere. And she said, yes, you're right. And I would pray with her, and I said, we're going to be together soon. We've just got a little work left to do here. And the hope of heaven and the hope beyond the grave that as Christians we don't die, we begin to truly live, really ministered to her and put it into perspective. And all I was doing was sharing the truths of God's word that brought about a, a, a change of countenance and watched her strengthened in the process. And it was simply by speaking. I didn't give her $10,000. I didn't do anything for her other than share with her the truth of God's word that resonated with her heart, that reestablished her joy and brought this happiness and this contentment. Bible speaks of godliness with contentment is great gain. And as I reflected on these two AA members that were speaking, one was from Boston. He was a great speaker. And he had talked about how Dan was always talking about the Lord this and the Lord that. And he said, you know, and he never feared death. And he says, I don't think about death often. I, I told Dan that I have accepted Christ as my Savior. I'm just not a churchgoer. And that seemed to rest with Dan. And he was comfortable because he, he was relentless in wanting to make sure that I had reconciled my life to the Lord. And, and um, I have to say, though, and the man said this, he goes, I have to say, as I stand before you, I want to I wanna know if Dan was right. Is he really in heaven? And I'm over there going, yeah, he is. I, I mean, I, I know that I know. How do I know this? Because God's word is true. And, and, and then I was reflecting on God's word is true. I, I'd been reading articles this week, and one in particular was, uh, about why the ref reform movement is so popular amongst our young people. Back in the 50s and 60s, the reformed church, Calvinist churches were dying in America, and there's been this resurgence uh, through the Gospel Coalition and John Piper and a slew of others, Martin Lloyd-Jones and, and many others, R.C. Sproul, and this, this move towards, towards the reform movement. And I was thinking to myself, why is it so popular amongst young people? One of the reasons why it's so popular amongst young people is because it declares the sovereignty of God. In my estimation, and, and I, I, you know, for those of you who are reformed, I don't mean to derail you or belittle you. That's not my goal. I'm, I'm just expressing my own spiritual walk. I, I think that the sovereignty goes a little too far, a lot too far in, in hyper-Calvinism. But the idea of the sovereignty of God 
is, is the fact that they hold to the inerrancy of God's Word. It's, it's, it is inerrant. I love that. And the reason why young people are drawn to it is because they live in a sea of obscurity. With Arminius and the like, they, they tend to say, you know, God's Word is inspired but not inerrant. Well, then why believe it? it, it as I was listening to Justice Kavanaugh do an interview with Shannon and Bream, on Fox, he was declaring that he had learned from Antonio Scalia, which revolutionized his law practice, that they looked at the Constitution as what they call um, original intent. What did the original writers intend? It was a fascinating way to observe a document. And, and is it a living document that we have to change and make it fit the whims of what we desire, or is it set for all generations? And his declaration is, it is just as strong when it was written as it is today, and it doesn't need to be changed. What did they intend? That's the meaning. And I, I was moved by this statement because all of a sudden you have a foundation that isn't subjective to whatever your desire is. And I think in this day and age we're struggling. And, and would we, did I ever think I'd live long enough I remember when Christians were considered to be unscientific by faith and the secular progressive movement was declared to be scientific. And now the roles have reversed. They've abandoned science, even in biology, to embrace secular progressivism. And I'm looking saying, I'm considered to be strange that I would declare biologically that there's two genders. When did this happen? And, and now we're, we're pressing for science, and they're pressing for emotion. And there's the concept of feeling, you know, feeling good and doing good. Feeling good is to give a drug addict a hypodermic needle because it feels good to help them. But that's not doing good because ultimately they'll die. Feeling good is giving a dollar to a homeless person on the corner. Because it usages your guilt. It feels good. But it doesn't do any good for our community. We have programs. We have places. We have folks all ready to, and set to help. And, and, and to give in that capacity undermines what we're trying to do in relation to good. We want the easy way out. We want to feel good. But to do good is challenging. To do good requires a difficult task. To do good requires that people will contend with you. They have, they have an easier program to sell because it's instant. And yet, when you want to do good, it's harder. It's long-term. It requires education and processing. And in the course of this, as I was reflecting back on the, the memorial service and all these things taking place, I, I thought to myself, where does this happiness come from? Is it from feeling good or doing good? And it's from doing good. Happiness started in the scriptures with the psalmist writing it. And we don't know who it was. Again, it's an orphan psalm. But this, this cadre of music that was penned for the human heart to be a motive, but also to dwell on truth, was a combination of the two. And the human heart is a desire for happiness. But in that course, it's also an act of the will, a willingness to do the difficult to do the difficult. And the psalmist doesn't mix any words. The psalmist begins with blessed. Oh, how happy. And you're drawn to it. We're, we're all in a world where we'd like a little more happiness. We've never been so wealthy and yet so depressed. And in the process of it, the psalmist says, blessed is the man. Oh, how happy is the man. What man is that? And what is this happiness? 
Oh, how happy is the man who what? And this is where we see this idea of happiness. Our founders love the concept of happiness. They got it from the Scriptures. Blessed, oh, how happy. They saw it as an act of virtue based on the psalmist and many other writings in the Old Testament and in the New Our founders, when they put together our birth certificate, now granted it's Constitution Week and it'll be the the birthday of our Constitution, but, but going before the Constitution was a Declaration of Independence, which was the inspirational work for the Constitution. The Declaration of Independence declared the reason of the separation from an oligarchy. And these founders wrote these fascinating words that have echoed through all of history, and it was never intended just for the United States, but for all mankind We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights among those being, and we've seen it, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness. They knew that for a nation to be successful, the constituents, the people, had to be happy. It's miserable to serve under a king who's miserable. He takes it out on all of the citizenry. The king in America is in the first three words of the preamble that you'll study on these Thursday nights with Scarlet. It's an amazing study. Usually studies like this decrease in attendance. It's increased. We're watching as we're revisiting these old truths that have given us this foundation. And all of a sudden our eyes are being opened. There's an awakening happening across the nation. People are returning to these things because there's a longing. What's happened There's two ideologies. There's a God or there isn't. And they reflect itself in in the process. The laws of nature and nature's God. Abandoning God, what do we have? In this secular progressive movement where we have one party dominating the political landscape in the state, watching, I've, I've heard 10 people this week alone that are leaving the state. We've had the anti-vaccination bill, we, we, uh, or the pro-vaccination bill. We, we've had the sex ed bill that's come. We're watching all of this. There's now all kinds of things that are being put forward in a supermajority of a one-party system that is oppressing and taking away. And we look at, the, at Christendom, and we're under attack. And we're ridiculed and ostracized and, and marginalized. The body of Christ is being challenged and tested. And we run from the conflict. We run from the trial. And in the midst of it, we want to be in a place of happiness. And yet the psalmist says, happiness is not based on your location, but on your character. The scripture says, godliness with contentment is great gain. You can be happy wherever you are, in whatever you are. And that's why the psalmist is so profound and why it begins with this. The keys to happiness are all found in this psalm. If you look at the beginning, it says, blessed, oh how happy, Oh, how happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. You see, the portion of the passage that you look at is it begins with, this man is happy who does these things. And the whole outline of those first two verses is real simple. From whence do you get... From whence do you glean your influence? What influences you? You've heard, and and I learned this as an athlete in high school and in college, garbage in, garbage out, good in, good out. 
Whatever you're putting in is whatever's coming out. Whatever you're putting in is whatever's coming out. Whatever you're putting in is whatever you're putting out. If you're putting in garbage, you're putting out garbage. If you're putting in good, you're putting out good. What influences you? We want to make the most of our walk with the Lord. Some folks want to avoid even the question itself. But we're in a day and age where we can no longer avoid the question Because what we wanted in the comfort of the walls of the church is just to be left alone, but we're not being permitted to do that anymore. Our lives are being challenged. Our walks are being challenged. Our peace is being invaded. And yet we want to have happiness. And how can we make the most of our walk with God? How can we do these things and find our place happy? We need to look carefully at this psalm because it will minister to our heart. In verses 1 and 2, the one thing I I pointed out earlier is that we have to look around to see what influences us. There's only two possible ways we can be influenced. Either we're influenced with godly influence or influenced with ungodly influence. Influenced by godly influence or influenced by ungodly influence. It's that simple. How are you being influenced? What, What sets the course of your life? What establishes your your picture of the world? You're surrounded by all kinds of influences. You wake up every day and everybody wants your attention. You're inundated with social media. You're inundated with media itself. You're inundated with conversations in the community or newspapers along this capacity. And and it's, it's really what is influencing you, what is molding you, what is shaping you. You think about it, you don't have to teach kids to be bad. They're grown with it. They're born with it. You have to be aware of ungodly influences and you need, to, you need to note how you get to this place where you become, as the psalmist says, one of those who can't stand before God's judgment. That you have now found yourself a mocker or a scoffer and you're against those things of God. It begins simply by walking away from godly counsel. You see, the scripture says, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, You see, the reverse of that is if you don't want to be happy, maybe you're thinking happiness is found in the absence of conflict. You think happiness is found in the absence of conflict because the passage says, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Walking means you're going in the direction they're going. You're stepping in the direction they're going. And and sadly, the scripture says, as we're going to study in Luke 12 and 13, that That broad is the way to destruction, but narrow is the road unto salvation. And many walk this direction. The world is walking that way. And for you to walk in the opposite direction, you will be ostracized, alienated, ridiculed, marginalized, picked on, and there will be conflict. And they're going to look at you and go, and you're just, why can't you just walk with us? Why do you have to be so contrary? Why do you have to say such things? And they're going to make a spectacle of you. How do you maintain happiness when you're, when you're going in the opposite direction of where everyone else is walking? Well, the psalmist will point that out, but he says, if you choose to avoid conflict and you want the path of least resistance, just go with the flow. Turn around and join the flow. And as you're walking with them, you're going to more than likely take up a conversation in the course of the direction you're walking. You just, you don't want to be contrary. You just kind of want to get along. You want to adapt to the culture. You want to kind of roll with it. You don't want to be that guy. And we're watching this in the body of Christ today. It's very apparent. One Christian steps out and, and walks in the opposite direction counterculturally. 
And Christendom is the first to bash them. Because it's moral pietism. We like to defend ourselves in the direction we're walking with the ungodly and say, well, yes, we have, I have a walk with the Lord. I do believe in God, but I'm not them. So let's just keep walking and let's not talk about it. And I get that. You, you don't want conflict. I get that. You think peace is the absence of conflict. It's not. That's why Jesus will say in Luke 12 and 13, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. The ideology of declaring Christ to be the author of your walk and the direction of with, with which you walk is going to run into conflict with the world's idea and the ideologies that govern mankind. Now you can turn around and go with the flow. And in going with the flow, you're going to be the first to defend your position of going in the direction they're all going when somebody in Christendom that you purport to be a follower of steps out of line and goes the opposite direction. You'll justify your, your contentedness by the fact that they are a little too much. And you walk, as you walk in this direction of the world, you tend to engage in conversations. And the Lord says it's better not to walk in that direction. But as you walk in the, world of, in, the, in the worldly wisdom and forsaking godly wisdom, and then you place yourself under godly influences, you begin to do things that just try to fit in. The word is no longer inerrant. It's now inspired. It's no longer inspired. It's maybe just an opportunity of certain things that we believe and others we don't. And then you find yourself compromising over time and you're off a degree and the next thing you know, you're completely enmeshed in it. And the next stage, as the psalmist says, as you begin to walk, then you stop for a moment and you stand in the presence of the ungodly in the way of the sinners. You begin to take advice from them. You move to consulting with the ungodly, identifying with the ungodly. The author says standing speaks of how we are now identifying with the way of sinners. They're just like us. Well, they are. And we're just like them. We are. But to justify their behavior so it's somehow acceptable to Scripture because you have empathy, you don't get to change the rules. Yeah, I, I, there are times I, I find a struggle representing the Lord. I, I don't like to talk about divorce, but the Scripture does, so I bring it up. I don't like to talk about hell, but the Scripture does, so I, I, I discuss it. That's why we go for, through the whole Bible, because if we didn't, I'd avoid all those things. But the Scripture says it. And just because it's hard, it's true. Nobody likes to be called a sinner. No one likes to be called a pagan. No one likes to be called ungodly. I didn't. I sat in that seat for many of the 55 years I've been on this earth. I would think of people saying these things that I'm saying from the pulpit, and it would, it would, it would anger me. How dare you judge me? I get it. I'm not judging you. The Word is. You can dismiss the Word. You can ridicule the Word. You can, you can do whatever you want. But it has survived for thousands of years. It's not going anywhere. It's here. And everywhere it says that there was an archaeological issue, you dig there and you find it. It, it, it's, it, it aligns and it's proving itself year in and year out. It's the oldest work of antiquity. In antiquity as, a, as a history major studying it, there's, there's no other work of antiquity that has more cross-referencing declaring itself to be true than the Scriptures themselves. We have writings that existed in the, the time the apostles lived. We, we pulled out the Dead Sea Scrolls and they are identical to what we have in our current scriptures and they were thousands and thousands of years old. The record we hold in our hand is valid and legitimate 
and it's transformed cultures and proved itself to be true. Astronauts that landed on the moon declared the word to be true, held to its truth, declared it as they navigated and, and circumvented the moon. Yet, we want to avoid conflict. It's no fun going against the flow. So as we turn around and join the flow, we stop for a minute, we start to counsel with them, and we stand in their presence, and the Scripture says you stand in the path of the sinner. You don't oppose their viewpoint. You're looking to embrace what they say. You begin to bend your beliefs to accommodate theirs. And you find yourself in a realm of compromise, which is happening in the church. And again, as we're going to be preparing to do Luke 12 and 13, you're going to see this picture of a mustard seed that is, grows into this enormous tree, which is abnormal. And in it is planted all these, these ravens, these dark birds that represent sin itself and leaven. And, and this picture that the church has exploded in popularity, but is inundated with evil because we've compromised in order to keep butts in the seats. Edit the word but, please. And we want the world to be content, so we don't want to deal with the tough issues. We don't want to address those things. I get that, too. And trying to survive in a, in a, in a postmodern world and countercultural where we're being countercultural as, as we are now in the minority. And it's an interesting place to be in California. There's never been greater persecution across the earth upon the Christian world than today, as Senator Sam Brownback pointed out. In the 1040 window, longitude and latitude, where 90% of the Muslim world exists on the, on the globe of the world, Christians are being decimated. They used to have pockets of Christen, Christendom in the 1040 window, and now they're just being annihilated. Here in America, would you have ever, ever imagined that we're coming into a presidential election where there's a declaration of a true attack on Christianity itself? That you would be identified as a xenophobe and a racist and, and go down the whole list, an Islamophobe, all these things simply because you hold to the Word of God. And yet here we are today, struggling. The older folks are struggling, millennials are struggling, the younger generation, fascinatingly enough, is being drawn to these reformed churches because they see a willingness to stand upon the inerrancy of God's Word. They want something of substance. There's an awakening happening in the younger generation which excites me about what Liberty's doing and I pray that it comes together. You see, there's only one position worth having if you want happiness and that's God's position. It's not dependent on which direction the world's going or your circumstances. You can be happy in the midst of challenge. You can be happy in the midst of conflict. I know I am. I've never been happier. I've never been more overjoyed and, and, and having more meaning in life. I love to watch how it transforms human lives and to see the response and to see lives changed. You know, Dan Traub and his wife Sylvie, when my daughter Natasha, 18 years of age, left the house, she went off the rails. We adopted her when she was 12. She had gone through a horrible experience in Russia when we had adopted her. We didn't know any of this. She went dark. And she moved from Thousand Oaks into Oxnard, and when she went in, we'd lost contact with her. And it was Dan and Sylvie who had a, a, a business down there, and Dan called me and said, I want to hire your daughter to come work for me. I said, I wouldn't do it. She'll steal from you. I said, she's, she's on a path of, of just darkness. And she voluntarily left. I didn't kick her. She left. She didn't want to live under the, the auspices of the house. As for, for me and my house, will serve the Lord. She knows we love her, but she doesn't want anything to do with what we believe. She wants to go with the flow. And I said, Dan, 
you're, you're going to be you're going to be trying to reach somebody who's not interested in 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 anything you believe in. He said, I understand that. He said, but Rob, I've been sober. I, I know what it's like to be in her shoes. I'm going to reach out to her. And sure enough, Natasha did a number on him. I, I, I think she took money from him quite a bit. But Dan and Sylvie were instrumental in Natasha coming to the end of her life of darkness. It was Dan and Sylvie who were used of the Lord for Natasha to be broken and be able to call us and say, Dad, I want to come home. It was Dan and Sylvia who used of the Lord to step into Teen Challenge. They suffered. Compassion costs you something. They didn't want to feel good, they did good. When I was with Dan on his deathbed as he would be with the Lord the following day, his comment to me was, tell Natasha all is forgiven. I shared that at the memorial service and Dan's daughter had never heard that. Dan and, and her sp- Dan's daughter and her spouse were from London. They didn't know about their dad's life with the Lord in that capacity. She was touched. We had a good conversation. Dan was happy in the midst of cancer. Dan was happy in the midst of nothing. Dan was happy in the midst of being cheated. He saw God's hand in all of it. But when we walk in the way of, of the world, in the counsel of the ungodly, and we stand in the path of sinners, we begin to sit in the seat of the scornful. Sitting speaks of a resting place. We've landed in a position that we feel very comfortable with. This is where, this is where the body of Christ begins to devour itself. As Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, I don't know what's worse, the voice of my enemies or the silence of my friends. Well, I do know it's worse, the voice of my friends who attack in the midst of walking with God in opposite of where the world is going. They find justification in their going with the flow by moralizing their rebellion. And then the body of Christ devours itself and the Daily Beast comes out with an article and pastors pass it around as though it's gospel. How tragic. I watched that with the ministry in Montana. They pass around an article of the Daily Beast as though it's gospel. How tragic. Where's Galatians 6? Where's Matthew 18? Where's due process in accordance with just the laws of nature and nature's God? We justify ourselves as though our actions are somehow acceptable because we, we aren't doing these things. That's not me. I elevate myself. We become scoffers and mockers. We embrace the ungodliness and everything that is holy and godly. That's not to say that the ministries are not without fault. They have their fault, trust me. So does this ministry and any other that you'll step foot into because it's filled with people like me and you. Amen. But the question is, who are we being influenced by? How do we respond to the articles in the Daily Beast? Do we respond by copying them and mailing them out, or do we respond by the Word of God? Do we respond by godly counsel and encouragement to the body of Christ? Do we keep it within the body of Christ and apply, and apply those principles laid out on, on what we call the, the, king, the court of the king, or do we do the court of man? Do we seek to get the world to devour the body of Christ, or do we step in realizing that we have a course of action to take to bring about a resolution within the body of Christ as we have done with Pastor Marty. 
Do we do the hard thing or do we do the easy thing? And the question remains, who influences us? I'm running out of time, so I'll go faster. Blessed is the man who makes much of his walk with God and will surround himself with godly influence. I love this picture. It's better to walk alone than to walk with a crowd going in the wrong direction. This is another one I thought fitting. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm, and that's out of Proverbs. Again, blessed, oh, how happy is a man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This idea of meditating on the Word of God, desiring the Word of God, that it would be the influence in our life, that we would long for it, as it says in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, as newborn babes desire sincere milk. If you've ever seen a child that is being breastfed, they are just rooting and longing. They're hungry. They just, it's like the only thing they want. Do we awaken with that desire? No, we awaken wanting to get into the flow of the world. We awaken with our, our portfolio on our mind. We awaken with our schedule on our, on our mind. We awaken with relationships on our mind or things that we need to pursue on our mind, with our schedule, with, with the lunches that we have to make and the things that we have to do. We don't awaken with a longing to spend time in the Word of God to establish a firm foundation and to find the influence of our life. To meditate day and night means morning and evening, that we begin with him, we end with him, and it's a sandwich of him influencing the direction of which we walk. Instead, we just jump out of bed into the flow of the world, busy, 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 and beware of the barrenness of a busy life. To meditate day and night and to find this time with the Lord, that the Lord is gracious, ask him, ask him for a hunger for his word. Say, God, would you give me a desire to awaken in your word? Would you give me a desire to conclude my day in your word? Then we're exposed to godly influence. That is where we find the happiness. It'll be found in the Bible. We meditate on God's word. Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's more than just casually reading through the scriptures. And some of you say, I don't even know where to begin in the word of God. It's okay. I get that too. I remember a brand new Christian. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I just, I was going through the Bible and they told me to read the book of John. I finished that and I'm like, what do I do now? If you want to know Jesus, read John. And then, and I love narratives. So the gospels are always fun to read because they're stories and I like stories. I like to tell them and I like to read them. I like to go through the book of Acts. It's a narrative. I get, draw, I get a little bit tired when I get through some of the pastoral epistles, but they're cool. Romans is a bog down for me at times, but I dig in and I start to enjoy it. It's a harder read. I love Genesis, a narrative, until you get to the begats, and then it's like, <laughs> but, I, but even going through that in a deeper, complex study, you start to realize that the names even mean something. So you, you grow in that understanding. But I will say this, real simplistically, that I learned when I was young, for those of you who are new to the Word of God, the Proverbs that I just had quoted one from, Proverbs, there's 31 chapters of Proverbs. The most days you're going to find in a month are 31. So you can actually do a proverb a day. One chapter of Proverbs a day. And, and it's, it's great. It's wisdom. And I've been doing that since I was in my 20s. And I just love it. I love the, the, what I call the biblical hymnal, which is Psalms. These were folks that emotively shared truths of God's word like the worship songs we sing here. These were written and penned and, and considered to be inerrant and God put them in his word. And, and, and then I, I stumbled across another devotional which was 31 Days of Wisdom and Praise where they combined Psalms and Proverbs. I'm like, I love this. I go through different types of devotions, but I do devotions. You want to be happy? Spend time 
in God's Word. How happy do you want to be? Spend more time in His Word. It's conditioned upon that. Memorize them. Meditate on them. God will do an amazing work. How does a young man keep his way clean according to Psalm 119.9? By taking heed according to thy word. It's profound. Make the most of your walk with God. How we are influenced will reflect in what we become as character. And you look inside your heart, what kind of person are you becoming? Are you an angry person? You saw the video. And what's, what you're putting in is what's coming out. And your happiness is not contingent. And, and I'm convicted every time I see that video. And my wife has been so patient with me. And she's tender and she's patient with me. But I am so guilty of that, that thing where the guy's angry and taking it out on his family. And then there's a knock on the door. Hey, praise the Lord. How are you doing? Good to see you. Hey, hi. No. Oh, great. Life is super. And my wife is like, And don't think you haven't done it. <laughs> and, and through the course of your life, you think, home is where I get to go and let my hair down and be an idiot. <laughs> it's not. It's not where you're allowed to go and be an idiot. It's where you're allowed to apply these truths and to walk in this principle of letting God minister to your heart as you minister to your family. They deserve it much, if not more, than anyone else on this earth. And you do that. I love that the scripture says he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season whose leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. This author says in the, in the concept of fruitful, they are refreshing and nourishing to be around. You go away from them fed. You go away strengthened. You go away with your taste for spiritual things awakened. Their words are healing and convicting and encouraging and deepening and enlightening. Being around them is like a meal. I love being around people like that. You spend time in their presence and they're just, and you think about a fruitful tree. They, they produce this stuff to feed you. You're like, oh, it's awesome. They're, they're so rooted in God's word that they have stuff to give you. Their counsel's wise. I love that. They've spent time with the Lord and they have something to give you. Now there's been times where I've like, you know, spent time with the Lord and I've got fruit on the tree and people come up and, and they're like one of those harvesters in the San Joaquin Valley. They just come up to you as this tree and they latch on with these two claws they go blah, 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 and they shake you and all your fruit falls out and you're like, oh, 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 no, thank you. And they go to the next tree. Blah, blah, they're just takers. You know what I'm talking about. They're like, fruit, blah, 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 fruit, blah, blah, blah. and they take it. Well, you just go, Lord, give me more. And there's more fruit. But they, they test you. And the cool thing is the leaves are the things that sustain the fruit, and these leaves are green. They're durable. They don't wither. Regardless of which way the wind's blowing, they stay the course. And that's to be rooted in God's Word, the living water, and allow your life to be fruitful. And you're going to be challenged. You're going to be stretched. You're prosperous in whatever you do. And some of you are thinking, you know, I look at the wicked that cut corners. I'm in a real estate office, and they lie, and they cheat, and, they, they, and then I, I, sometimes I'll get a client that will take me to go and you know, show them thousands of houses, and they'll go with another real estate agent. They'll give them a cut in their thing, and they just you know, used me. And I, the, the, the wicked just win. No, they don't. Psalm 73 addressed that, and the psalmist wrote, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They had so much money, like Epstein. 
Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. You got lots of wealth. And you're miserable. Looks like the wicked ones are the ones that are becoming filthy rich. But the tragedy is, we think to ourselves, Lord, I'm suffering. I, I don't have what they have. I'm doing it right. Yeah. And you're happy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, at the end of Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I thought all that until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. The idea is you haven't seen their end. The righteous, whatever they do, prospers. But here's how it closes. The ungodly are not so. You see, we are this tree, but the, the, the passage says the ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Let me, let me describe that. I, you read that and you go, oh, the ungodly aren't gonna stand in judgment. No, the ungodly have no ability to stand in the judgment. They have nothing to stand on. There's no platform. The Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die, then judgment. I'd love to avoid this conversation. If we didn't have this, this, this theological position of hell, my cell would be so much easier. But the scripture talks of hell. No one speaks of hell more than Jesus because he doesn't want anyone to go there and he put a big barrier in front of the gates of hell, which is the cross. And he's saying reconcile, be forgiven. Entrances into hell is, is, a, is accomplished by sin in your life. One sin puts you into hell, one. It's rebellion against God. I've, I've reconciled, I've paid the penalty, receive it. And you got two options, you can do it your way or you can do it God's way. You stand before God in your own righteousness and you think you're gonna survive because you've sat through a church service and you've looked at me and you know about my life and you know the 55 years that you have proven and it wasn't hard to do that you were a better person than me. And I would guarantee you everyone in the room is better than me. You win, good for you but I'm not the standard. You lose. God's the standard. Good luck. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many times a day does a good person like you sin? Eight multiplied by 365 multiplied by how many years you live and you're gonna stand before God and go, I'm a good person? Do you know who he is? Do you know how he detests sin? Do you know what price he paid to, to deliver you and the price you've rejected? To declare before him that you are more righteous? That you don't need what he did for you? And he did it in complete love? And if you want to know what hell is, I, I, I can go through a deep study. We don't have time, but I will say this. Hell is everything God isn't. And God is everything hell isn't. Hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth and sorrow and sadness and death and misery. And, and if you think you're going to party with your friends, there's no party there. You, you, can, you can whistle by the graveyard and say it doesn't exist, but the one thing we all have in common is we see the graveyards. They're testimony that nobody's getting off this earth alive. You better figure it out. Time is ticking. On this end, there's a God who says you need not die. If you're born twice, you'll only die once. If you're born once, you'll die twice. 
Don't fear the man who can kill the body. Fear the God who puts the soul in torment. And he doesn't put you there. You go there by your own choice to reject his salvation. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. You see, your life is fruitless. Chaff is the outer skin on the wheat, and you throw it up, and the wind just blows it away, and you go in the direction of the world, and the solid grain falls, and it feeds, and it changes the world. That's you. That's me. That's the call of Christ. The ungodly can't stand in the judgment. You can't stand there before a righteous God and declare yourself innocent. You're guilty. I look at these actresses that are going before the judges and one is going to contend their charges and the other admitted to it. One got 14 days. I'm fearful for the other one who's facing 40 years. You might as well just own it. And that's in a worldly judge. Imagine a God who is the embodiment of justice. For sinners, there, there will be no sinners in heaven. There will only be the forgiven and the cleansed. And listen, I'm not going to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm not better than you. I'm going to heaven because I have trusted in a good Savior whose righteousness is put on my account and it's waiting for you as well. Receive it or reject it. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's exclusive. He said it, I didn't. His word is true. And this is the way to happiness. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. You look inside, what are you, re- what are you becoming? You look ahead, how will you be judged? In heaven, there will only be one congregation, the congregation of the righteous. And God wants to look and say to you, I don't see your sin, I see my son's blood covering your sin. And the the enemy of your soul, Satan, will say, but he did this, this, and this on those dates. And then your advocate, Jesus Christ, your Savior, will say to the father, the judge, who happens to be his dad, he'll say, Dad, if you look in the court case, yeah, all those things are listed, but they're inele- you can't read them because they're covered in my blood. And the Father will say, case dismissed. Or you can stand before him with your own charges like one of the actresses and see how you fare. But you're not gonna get 40 years, you're gonna get eternity. God wants us to walk in the counsel of the godly. He wants us to stand in the way of the righteous. He wants us to sit with those who rejoice and worship. He doesn't want us to go in the flow of the world. He wants us to have true happiness, virtue, purpose. And I close with this. This was in uh, our daily bread in 1994. If you sow a thought, you reap an act. If you sow an act, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a a character. If you sow a character, you reap a destiny. Folks, life is a lot more than avoiding conflict. It's about having happiness through character. And this is the last one. This is in a British seminary, a seminary, cemetery, same thing. (laughs) This is in a British cemetery on a tombstone and I was there yesterday and I thought how apropos at a, at a cemetery. It says it on the tombstone. Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. And then a visitor added at the bottom with their own hand. To follow you is not my intent. 
until I know which way you went. <laughs> Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Delight and meditate on his word. And in that you will find happiness. Walk with God. Keep your eyes on him, the author, and finish for your faith. And happiness will be yours all the days of your life. And you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.